Those of you guys who may be watching at home, greetings to you. We have not forgotten you. We are eager to see you face-to-face one day, we hope. Uh, you know, we, we spent all that time teaching through 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14, all this stuff about spiritual gifts and how God gives each one individually as he will. But they're all for the common good and they're for serving. Um, sometimes it's hard to figure out how can I serve? How can I make a difference? How can I make a contribution? I don't feel like I do this. I don't feel like I do that. You know, care team is about just that first word in that title. It's about care, right? You don't have to be super gifted. You just have to have some compassion for people going through some hard times in their lives. And any of you guys who lived in the chaos of Katrina, you remember what it was like to have somebody show up and just do a little bit of heavy lifting with you. Just, just that they showed up, right? I mean, that's, I don't know how many tears I can remember of people just, you just showed up on their site and they felt like, you know, they just burst into tears because for them that meant, oh, God knows I'm here and he knows that I'm in need and, and, and he sent somebody to help. Well, that, that's who that team was over the weekend. And, and so maybe you're not super skilled in, I was going to say tearing stuff apart. Most of us are skilled in the tear apart part, right? We can do that. Just tear stuff down. Um, these guys that go with you on the trip, they tell you what to tear down, what not to tear down. So you don't pull the building down on your head. <clears throat> But if you've got any ability to serve in those capacities, sign up, be a part of the care team, and just let God use you to serve some real needs that are in people's lives right now. Much appreciate those guys. All right, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We are hanging out with Paul's description of the gospel of first importance. And, and today I want to I let you see something in the Bible that hopefully you'll translate into other locations in the Bible and you'll see it elsewhere as an important presentation that the Bible makes about the grace of God in our lives and how it holds certain things in proximity to each other. So let's, let's read beginning in verse 1 of this chapter. We're going to spend our time in verses 8, 9, and 10. Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers... Of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, right? We said last week, we stared at this verse and we saw Paul give this description of the gospel. And it's like he, he backs away with his video camera and, and more and more people come into the frame. And eventually there's Paul. He comes into the frame, into this conversation about the gospel. He says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And then he can't help but describe himself this way. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. There's something here that that pulls grace into our lives with some real power and influence. This is a powerful word. This is an influential word in our lives. And I know sometimes grace, even the way the word sounds, grace, it sounds passive and peaceful. It's a powerfully influential word. And Paul brings it up that way, right? This is what I'm going to say, the slogan of his life. And I think what he wants our slogan to be is, by the grace of God, I am. 
what I am. And that's going to go in two directions today, right? We looked at the one last week. Paul looked back at his life. Paul was in touch with some uncomfortable things about his life. Some things that I I think any of us would not be happy to use the words unworthy. And we are the least in certain categories. To be aware that we had even opposed the love of God in people's lives previously. And I don't know what feelings that produces for you, but this is Paul's story. But then he turns around and says, those things did not have the final say-so over my life. My life has not been controlled by or dictated by. I don't live every day in a demotivated way because the past in my life involves my failings, involves frustrating, terrible things that I did. I, I don't live in the shadow of that. Why? Because by the grace of God. I am what I am. I live in the shadow of God's grace. But then today he's going to install another aspect when he says, and that grace was not in vain. And then he says, no, to the contrary, I worked harder than all of them. So where does this grace conversation travel next? Well, it says that this grace wasn't empty. That's what that word means. It wasn't an empty thing in my life. It was a productive thing in my life. It brought forth fruit in my life. For Paul, he became a transformed person by the grace of God. He became a compelled person by the grace of God, right? He worked harder than them all. He's he's talking about all these apostles and others who have also been laboring in the kingdom of God. But Paul said, what grace did in my life, it compelled me. And he even says it this way. I worked harder than them all. Listen, I, I, don't, I don't know what grace is doing in all of our lives today, but there's something here in this construction that is so theologically helpful. Grace should be in our lives with power and influence bigger than our past and generating something in the present and into the future. Our lives are not being lived in vain. We live for something. We're about something that's massive and big. So I'm gonna introduce you today to just this concept. I'm gonna call it a grace sandwich, right? We're about to learn about a grace sandwich served up in the gospel deli right here in 1 Corinthians 15 that is gonna put grace in between two things, right? But let me just, let me just define grace for us a little bit. I realize some folks are getting around some of these teachings and truths, maybe for the first time. I cannot unpack all these words uh, with much detail, but let me just give you a quick summary. This is what I would describe as the grace of God. Grace is the mercy motivated God-based reasons for God's actions toward us. His saving purpose, his promise making. Right? Do you realize God didn't owe us a promise? He didn't have to promise us anything, but he does, right? He makes a lot of promises. Then his promise keeping, his favor and kindness based initiatives toward his elect. That's what the grace of God is. It is the key ingredient in whatever we are today calling gospel-centered. Now, I want to visit that term today. That's, a, that's not a new term. The centered part is a new term. The gospel is not a new term. But in, in the last couple of decades, gospel-centered is a major teaching point that we've seen in, in the church. Gospel-centered, I put in your outline, is today's terminology that seeks to guard us from turning the Bible into something that is man-centered, human effort-based, morality-driven system of approaching and relating to God. That's what gospel-centered is seeking to do. And that's an important thing. It's a critical thing. We can never turn our approach to God, our relating to God, our living for God into something that's man-centered. It would be the most miserable thing to ever participate in. It would crush you and wear you out on a daily basis. So we are right to guard our understanding of how we follow God, relate to God, are saved by God, so that grace is the feature component of it, or gospel-centeredness. But my question today, 
based on this construction here, is in our efforts to protect grace and gospel-centeredness, have we disassociated grace from human activity in an unbiblical way? Have we so sought to protect grace that we, we don't want anything about being human to get close to that thing? We don't want our, our past failings to come into the spotlight. Things that we've done, things that we failed to do, things that we've done wrong. We don't want to get that around grace. And then things that we should do and works in our lives. We don't want to get that around grace either. We want to keep that pure. Kevin DeYoung makes an interesting point in his book, The Hole in Our Holiness. He says, among conservative Christians, there is sometimes the mistaken notion that if we are truly gospel-centered, we won't talk about rules or imperatives or moral exertion. We are so eager not to confuse indicative, right? Those are statements that tell us what God has done with imperatives. These are statements that tell us what we should do, that we get leery of letting biblical commands lead uncomfortably to conviction of sin. We're scared of words like diligence, effort, and duty. And I I agree, something's happened. This is not always how the body of Christ felt, but something's happened in our modern day that if you use these words, and Paul uses one today, and that's why this comes up so clearly, I worked harder than them all. Paul features something about hard work, about living a life that did hard things, striving. He uses the word striving in other places in scripture to describe the effort component. And it feels like today, it's like, wait, wait, wait. That's uncomfortable. Don't put the emphasis there. That's not gospel centered. Well, you know, this is the Bible. The Bible inherently is gospel-centered, right? It is, by definition, gospel-centered. Whatever you and I think gospel-centeredness means, uh, the Bible is gospel-centered. So when I come to this passage and I find Paul putting together this, this grace sandwich, he doesn't have a problem serving up something to us that has, has one piece of bread over here, That sounds like I am the least of the apostles unworthy to be called an apostle. I persecuted the church. Paul brings his failings and his humanity that's touched by sin into this conversation. And then the next thing he adds to this sandwich is the grace of God. But by the grace of God... I am what I am. And then he slaps another piece of bread on this sandwich. And that other piece of bread is that grace was not in vain. It produced something in my life. I worked hard. This is a gospel-centered sandwich served up in the gospel deli, right? It's not a problem. And, and And it's familiar in scripture, Right, last week, we, we visited other guys in scripture who have that story. Right? We visited Isaiah, this prophet that gets called by God, by the grace of God. Right? If there's a calling in any of our lives, it's by the grace of God. You know, you know, I don't get to create a calling because we've worked hard or we've been good people or we've lived better than somebody else or we applied more biblical principles to our lives. Therefore, we generate a calling in our life. No, that's not how callings work. Isaiah gets called by the grace of God. And the moment he gets around that grace, the first thing out of his mouth is how unclean his own lips are. But that doesn't stop him from using those very lips to be a prophet of God. The very lips, it's funny that he said, my lips are unclean. And the thing he was called to was going to be a speaking ministry. And it would not deter shorten or uproot God's call in his life. Because why, Isaiah? Because by the grace of God, I, I am what I am. Right? That was John the Baptist's claim as well. It's Paul's claim right here. This guy who persecuted the church became the ultimate builder of the church in the New Testament. I don't think anybody, we could argue with anybody, built the church up more than the Apostle Paul. But by his own doing and his own confession, He was against the very thing that God called him to do. Isn't that amazing? 
that God had in mind for him to rewrite the record books, if you would, in terms of being an apostle. But he, the one that he chose to do it was the one who was tearing down the church with incredible effectiveness. Paul, how do you explain that? By the grace of God, I am what I am. And this is not just a first Corinthians moment. All right. This is a, this is a theological moment. Theology works this way all over the Bible. Look, turn to Ephesians chapter two with me. And you'll just see this all throughout the new Testament in terms of how this grace presentation gets made. But here, here is a theological cornerstone to really understand the doctrine of grace. You really do need to understand this particular uh, chapter in Ephesians chapter two. Notice the sandwich that gets built here, right? Verse, number, verse one through three. Here's our first ingredient. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, you were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All right, so there's our first slice. And it starts with a vivid description of, of our humanity. This is my humanity and yours. And it describes us as being dead, Right, so I'm not working on anything righteous in this moment, right? Why? Well, because I'm dead. Right? I'm not living a life that God's saying, hey, hey, you know, I'm uh, thinking about coming to earth and doing something really, really pretty cool. And uh, I'm just looking for some volunteers and, and, and Keith is on my list because he's doing some pretty incredible stuff. Is that your understanding of grace? Because according to Ephesians chapter 2, I was doing dead stuff. That's what I was doing. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. I was not doing anything that was commending me to God. And then when he unpacks that further, he, he kind of says, you know, and Keith, not only were you dead, you were dead to God, but you were quite alive to sin. You were following the course of this world. So you were cooperating. There was a course in the world. There was ways of doing things. And you were following those ways. And you wanted to do them. There were passions in this verse. And there are desires of the body. Right? I wanted something. And I was living my life for that. Well, that's Paul. Before he meets Christ on the road to Damascus, isn't it? He's following the course of this world. He's around a religious group of people that have fed him the idea that, hey, you want to be great religiously, be associated with these people, live your life this way by these principles and these rules and be against those people right there. Well, it just happened to be those were God's people that he was against. But he did this wholeheartedly. That was Paul's life. And, and it was our life as well. But... Look at verse four. Here comes our next sandwich ingredient. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved, right? This is that same construction that Paul says, how do I explain this? Well, by the grace of God, I am what I am, right? We were these things, but God, there was something about God. There was something in God. Grace was in God. And it was rich in this mercy with a love with which he loved us. That's what grace does. It's in God traveling toward us. It's not something in us that we pull God toward us with. This grace comes and changes drastically the story. It's got that but word attached to it. And in verse 6, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places. Did you do that? Did I do that? No. The grace of God did that. It's one of those indicative statements that, really, that tells us God did this for us. He raised us up 
We receive the benefit of that. He seated us in heavenly places. We receive the benefit of that. So that, verse 7, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In the coming ages. Grace is as active in our lives today in this moment as it was when it saved you. And it will be tomorrow and it will be into eternity. In the coming ages, God will be lavishing his grace upon us. So as Paul looks back over his life and and maybe Paul's the best example, most best behaved example. I can look at my own life and say, you know, yeah, I look back that when I got saved, there's a lot of really junky stuff going on and boy, grace needed to show up in that moment and save me. And then God went to work in my life. And here I am all these years later. Um, I, do I not need grace like that anymore? I do. I, I need grace to show up in my life. I need it to be lavished upon my life. In the coming ages, I'm going to continue to need the grace of God in my life. I still have issues. <laughs> There's still, still stuff that's got to change in me and growth that's got to take place in me. There's still a resume of unworthy that travels with me every day of my life. I need grace to show up in a big way. And God promises it. He's going to lavish his grace upon us in the ages to come. And then here's the clarity on this grace. By, verse 8, by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So there's our second ingredient in this grace sandwich. But he's not done. He's going to add another ingredient in verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And let those words sit on you just for a second. So there are works that have been prepared for me to do. Not only should I anticipate on this other side of this encounter with grace, not only should I anticipate that there are works that I'm going to actually perform, I'm actually going to do something in my life, I should do them. I should do them. How's that word should to you. You should be doing something. Does that feel okay? Does that feel gospel-centered? Does that feel like it's emphasizing the wrong thing? Does it feel like, oh, then that's, that's man-centered, right? That's about what you do. That's, that's not about what Christ has done. Well, um, Paul even unpacked this in an interesting way, right? When he said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And that grace was not in vain. It produced something. I worked harder than them all. Yet, yet not I. It was the grace of God in me. But yet it was also Paul. And this is the inescapable connection in marriage. That grace is at work in us. And at the end of the ages, all the glory will go to God for any works that were ever done in any of our lives. But make no mistake about it, you were doing something. You should do something. And this is is where I think the the gospel-centered tilt uh, in the last several years has has answered to something beside the Bible because the Bible says this. I'm not introducing this word. By grace, you have been saved. Done deal. End of discussion. But there are these good works which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. What do you mean I should? Well, that was the Bible said. Is that a bad word? Well, it makes me feel obligated. It makes me feel like there's expectations that have just been put on me. 
it makes me feel like I'm falling short of something right now because I know that I'm maybe not doing all that I should be doing. Okay, I get that you feel that way. I live life too. I feel like I'm not doing everything that I should be doing either. But here's what I cannot do. I cannot go to this verse and deconstruct it. I cannot go and say that word's not there. I cannot go and say, if we're going to talk about grace, we're not going to talk about anything that I do. I can't do that because that's not what Paul did. And when Paul tells his story of standing in the shadow of the gospel, I think he's as gospel-centered as anybody's ever going to be. And he has no problem mentioning, I was unworthy and I worked my tail off. All in the same sentence. I, I, I get the carefulness that we need to be careful how we emphasize things. Remember, I quoted Kevin DeYoung earlier in what I call a bit of gospel-centered confusion. He says, if we are truly gospel-centered, we won't talk about rules or imperatives or moral exertion. But yet Paul does. And so perhaps that's not exactly the right way to approach things. You can create something that's trying, trying to do a good thing. This is trying to do a good thing. We need to protect the Bible and, and Christianity from becoming man-centered. We absolutely must do that. But just don't do it in a way that's not convincing because it's not biblical. Here's what you don't find in the Bible. You don't find the Bible creating some kind of a formula or recipe that, that for every you know, two verses that correct us, there's 20 verses preceding it that describe the character of God and the nature of God. For every three commands that send us on a mission for the glory of God, there are 17 verses that are going to be preceding it. It's going to be severely outnumbering those three about God's worth and what God has done and all the indicatives of what was done for us in Christ. If somehow we've developed a formula that says it's got to be at least two to one, 10 to one, maybe, um, you're going to be hard pressed to open the Bible up and find that. The Bible doesn't seem to have this freak out ability that if we have a conversation about grace and we also talk about our failings and we also talk about working hard, it doesn't seem to mind doing that. And if we mind it doing that, what, what is it that we're trying to fix? And I get it. Listen, I really do get it. I'm just not sure this is a fix. I'm just not sure saying, no, no, that's not gospel-centered, is an accurate description of what the Bible is describing. So in your outline, I said, this is creating a people who don't have the ability to be commanded or corrected or mandated to go on God's mission without having to battle with feelings of condemnation, failure, and a sense that God is angry or displeased with them. Do you feel that way? Do, do you feel like right now God is angry or displeased with you? Is that what the, the walk with God is feeling like for you? Is that what you are most in touch with? Is that what you're frequently in touch with? Now, I, I know those are real feelings. And, and you name me many people here this morning, many of you guys watching at home who may feel very much like, yeah, a lot of times I feel like I'm falling short and God is angry with me or he's disappointed in me, he's displeased with me somehow. All right, I'm, I'm not gonna try and unpack the ultimate remedy to that. I do know that's an issue. I just wanna make sure we don't create a non-biblical approach to remedying that. You, you don't have to pull the sandwich apart and, and eat the Oreo cream in the middle. You can eat the whole thing. Because the Bible inspired all this as a sense of, of gospel-centeredness. So let me show you a couple of things in a couple of passages here. Matthew chapter 28. If there ever was a gospel-centered passage, it's got to be Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 and following. Right? It is the great commission. It is verses that we should have memorized. It is Jesus pronouncing that all authority in heaven on earth has been given to him. Go, therefore into all the world and make 
disciples, Mark says, go and preach the gospel to all nations. So this is a gospel verse. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you to the end. Well, if you stare at that verse a little bit, that verse can generate some guilt. A pronounced sense of failure on your part. Because it is actually calling on us to do something that we might not be doing. It's mandating something that sits like an umbrella over every day of our lives, over the purpose of the church to do something in advancing the gospel into the world. And, and maybe I'm not doing such a hot job of going. And maybe when that gets brought up, I feel like I am the least. I'm the least of the goers in this room. I'm around other people who they share the gospel with everything that moves, man. When I get around them, they talk about sharing the gospel here, sharing the gospel. They go on missions trips to these remote places. I've never done any of that. I am the least of the goers in the room. Could that be possibly happening to you? How many guys, it's funny in the first service. How many guys know who Keith Green is? See your hands real quick. One, two. Come on, you kidding me? All right, a handful of men. In the first service, half the church knew who Keith Green was. Keith Green was a songwriter, musician, worship leader uh, in the 70s and 80s. Um, you would recognize some of his stuff if you got around it. But Keith Green owned a passion that the gospel should go to the ends of the earth. And you would not have a five-minute conversation with him without him bringing that up without him promoting it to the church. And a little more than that, Keith can make you feel guilty in an instance. He had a gift. He can make you feel like he could just play a song about whether or not you're following Jesus to the ends of the earth with the gospel. And when he was done with the song, you just wanted to walk away going, I'm not a Christian. I don't love God. I don't love lost people. I just love myself apparently. And that's how you were made to feel by getting around somebody that picked up Matthew 28 and waved it aggressively and meaningfully. What are you not going to do with that? That verse actually does put an expectation on each and every one of us. Is it gospel-centered? Yes. But it makes me feel like I'm failing. I'm not sure it makes you feel like you're failing, but there's something you're doing with it that is making you feel like you're failing. That might be a whole nother thing to discuss. But what I just do want to make us aware of is you can't edit the Bible and make it get dumbed down in this category. Like the Bible, listen, it's all about grace, man. The Bible really doesn't care whether you take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Really? That's how you're going to solve that tension, Keith? No, that's not how I'm going to solve it. I'm going to make it sound like when I preach that verse, like you and I are called to go to the ends of the earth with the gospel. That's what it sounds like. And that's what it should sound like. And then that verse unpacks something else that might not feel like it's gospel centered. Hey, when you get to these people and you share the gospel with them, teach them to observe all that I have commanded. Commanded? You want to tell people that they, they're supposed to obey God? That doesn't sound gospel-centered. Gospel-centered is about all that God does. It's, it doesn't bring up what you do. But Jesus said to bring up these instructions and teachings to them when you bring the gospel to them. Kevin DeYoung says, the word observe means more than take notice of. It means obey. We aren't asking the nations to look at Jesus' commands like an interesting Rembrandt. Look how beautiful. Look at Jesus inspiring. We are teaching the nations to follow his commands. The Great Commission is about holiness. God wants the world to know Jesus, believe in Jesus, and obey Jesus. We don't take the Great Commission seriously if we don't keep each, uh, help each other grow in Obedience. 
Obedience is not a curse word. Obedience is not an anti-gospel centered word. We can't treat these words like, oh, well, the writers of the Bible weren't gospel centered either because they keep bringing up. We're doing something wrong to the scriptures when we do this. Obedience is not a bad thing. What if I'm not obedient? Okay, well, that's a different issue. And I'm going to need to figure out how to interact with a perfect holy God when I am the least of things. I think I'm going to need to be able to say, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And I'm going to need to understand that. Let me give you one other example. Flip over to Colossians, a couple of books back. Colossians chapter 3. Notice this quick shift again. Same thing we saw in Ephesians. That there are gospel good news here. And then no delay immediately into activity involving human striving and effort. No delay in these. This is the way the Bible sounds, right? So chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, If then, right, if this is true, and it is, you have been raised with Christ. Did you do that? No. This is an indicative statement, right? This is indicating to you something that God has done on our behalf. Well, since that's true, seek things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died. Did did you do that? No, I didn't do that. That was done for me. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. Did, Did I have anything to do with that? Can you look back and find the day on your calendar when you hid your life in Christ and God? No, you can't. You can only find that God did that on your behalf. And what a thing to celebrate. What a a gracious thing that God has done in our lives. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear. This is the way grace speaks to us. It will happen. Not maybe. If you keep up the good work, you keep getting A's. No. This is God's grace. You will appear with him in glory. That's grace. That's not you. That's grace. But then look at the next verse. Put to death, therefore. Therefore. These indicative things are true. Therefore, you do this. Put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality. Impurity. Passion evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must, you should. Aren't these uncomfortable words? You must do this. You should do this. Put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. All right, so we just heard this incredible good news. And then right behind it comes, uh, don't do this, do that. Don't do that, do this. Stop doing that. Right? Do you see yourself in any of this stuff here? Covetousness? I mean, we're Americans. Pretty good at that one. Anger? Slander? Any of y'all been on Facebook or anything lately? Slander? Obscene talk? Right? Some of this stuff is actually describing our activity. I get nailed by some of these things. What do I what do, I do with that? Is, is that... Did Paul go gospel-centered, not gospel-centered? That's not gospel-centered, Paul, because you're talking about what I'm doing. And you know, when I hear that, it's just another thing I'm falling short of. It's another thing I'm not doing right. Like, Paul, like, I needed that reminder today. Thanks a lot, man. You have any idea what kind of week I've had? Do you think part of this passage is gospel-centered and the other part is not? Kevin DeYoung says, emphasizing... Free grace is not the problem. The problem is in assuming that good works will invariably flow from nothing but a diligent emphasis on the gospel. Quite honestly, I'm I'm surprised Kevin DeYoung didn't get scalped for writing that. Because there are folks who are writing and commending gospel-centeredness 
will produce all this. It will produce. And, and to some degree, I get why to say that. And I agree with that to some degree. But I'm not allergic to the Bible following up giant gospel proclamations of grace that have been done on your behalf by God, not by you, that you just receive the good of it. And then immediately coming right behind that with, okay, now let's get about business. Why? Because the grace of God is not in vain. It's not empty. It produces something in our lives. And what Paul wants to be clear about, and maybe today the church world needs this desperately. Because maybe grace doesn't seem to be producing very much. And if it does, when you go to argue back with your life and the devil you're going to have very little argument in that moment. You're going to have an empty argument. If grace has shown up in your life and you're not changed, you're not different, you don't find a cause outside of the cause you've always had. You know, I always wanted to be a fireman and I still want to be a fireman and I'm a Christian fireman now. Oh, okay. I guess. Really? How about the Great Commission? Did that show up in your laundry anywhere? That all of a sudden that matters to you the gospel filling the earth so that god might receive glory the god the grace of god shows up and it's not an empty showing up it produces something in us it, it draws out our desires and it compels our activity in our lives when the devil comes along and says, you're this and you're that, and you're not this and you're not that, or when your own flesh rises up and does that, and you wonder whether God is real, whether any of this stuff is real, if you got nothing in your experience in this category, if God hasn't transformed in some ways your life, you're in a bad place in that moment. The devil has the advantage over you and your flesh has a hundred arguments that this ain't real. This isn't real. You know, I think I may be real for your parents, but that's not real. No, I want to join Paul in saying, you know, this is who I was. The grace of God showed up and I worked harder. I was changed by this grace. It produced a life in me. It drew me toward me. Did, did you do that perfectly? You showed up every work, every day at work, Paul, every day. You never had, took a day off. You never failed at this. You never had a hard time with motivation. I'm sure he did. That's not the point. The point is that grace shows up with an impact and it affects the way we live our lives. Kevin DeYoung says, many Christians, including preachers, don't know what to do with commands and are afraid to talk directly about obedience. The Bible has no problem with the word therefore, right? It's Frequent pattern, grace, grace, grace. Therefore, stop doing this, start doing that, and obey the commands of God. That's how the Bible sounds. He says elsewhere in his book, it is not wrong for sermon to conclude with something we have to do. It's not inappropriate that our counseling exhort one another to obedience. Something deadly has creeped in when, when the activity of grace... It's almost being resisted and argued against. Like, I'm going to take steps of obedience. I'm going, to, I'm going to take a risk and do something that requires faith. It's a work of advancing the gospel or serving another person or laying my life down or manifesting the glory of God in a way that diminishes my own flesh. What if I don't do those things? I think that's unbelievably detrimental. I think Christians are designed by God to walk in the grace of God so that more grace is realized and more of God's life gets experienced and more of his love comes near to us. We don't, go to, we don't want to go to war with these things, right? So I think you're outlined to put a bunch of questions that, you know, would we question Paul in the way in which he speaks to us? Is Paul's style and writing out of bounds with being gospel-centered? How should Paul's emphasis be evaluated? How should Paul take into account all his listeners who are allergic to certain emphasis and presentation? They don't like it when you bring up those kinds of things, Paul. She soften that? She qualify it? 
If he brings up correction, should he like bust out two chapters on grace? He doesn't do that. Remember, he corrected the Corinthians to death. To death, right? We've been living in Corinthians for a while. It's one corrective setting after another. Did Paul think he was out of bounds in in bringing so much correction to the church in Corinth? Can I tell you, and you can go do the the math on on me for this. I think, I think grace gets mentioned in the book of 1 Corinthians five times. I think I'm right. Two of them are in 1 Corinthians 15. One of them is in the very beginning where it's a discussion of uh, a greeting, grace to you. So you get two other places early on in Corinthians where Paul mentions grace, but he doesn't fully unpack it or explain it. And then he starts correcting and correcting and correcting and correcting. Is, is that wrong? Should Paul not do that? I, I just think we've created some definitions that, that we need to be careful what we're doing with them. And, and we need to be careful how we're receiving God's word because it can feel like, okay, the second I, you know, if I've got this sensor thing going off, as long as I hear indicatives and grace, indicatives and grace, as long as I'm hearing things about God, and, but the second I come into the conversation and you mention anything about my unworthiness or any obligations that I should be doing, the second I hear that, I'm going to tune you out, man. I'm going to resist that in my life. Uh, then we're going to be resisting a lot of the Bible. Whatever gospel-centered is from a biblical standpoint, it sounds like this grace sandwich that we're talking about. A couple years ago, John Piper wrote a book on preaching. It's written for preachers, and it's a helpful, insightful book. But he put several chapters in this book that specifically are aimed at what I'm calling this gospel-centered confusion. Let me just listen, let you listen to a couple thoughts from John here that I think are helpful before we pray together. He says, you know, the first mistake when you come to a passage, and he's speaking about passages that have command elements to them, imperative teachings associated with them. The first mistake, preacher, is to just sound like this. Just do it. God said it, just do it. You know, doing things in the kingdom of God takes more awareness than that. It takes the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. There's a lot that should be said besides just do it. But then he says the second mistake is, well, you can't do it. But Christ did it perfectly. So turn away from your doing to his doing and enjoy justification by imputed righteousness. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? What's wrong with that, John? Why are you finding like you got an issue with that? Well, in some ways, yeah, that makes sense. But in some ways, I think he points out something that's helpful. He says the second mistake minimizes the seriousness of the command. It diverts attention from the real necessity of the imperative. It leads to a kind of preaching that oversimplifies the urgency and complexity of Christian obedience and turns every sermon into a predictable soteriological crescendo that trains the people to tune out and start putting their coats on. It silences the specific riches of the text by preempting them with unwarranted applications of right doctrine. All right, now that, that, that's a hard series of words, isn't it? All right, so we've got a, a verse that we're walking through that features a, a particular thing by the Holy Spirit. This verse is talking about a particular thing with regards to living the Christian life and understanding things from God, etc., And then he talks about it's not that verse isn't seeking to be preempted by the doctrine of justification or by the doctrine of the work of the atonement or the person and work of Christ injected into that as though, hey, we're just going to touch on this for a second. Then I'm going to go back to here's what Jesus did. It's not about what you did. It's about what Jesus did. But wait, wait, wait. That verse was making it about what you do in some kind of way. Shouldn't I pay attention to that? Or should I just kind of as quickly as possible release myself from all sense of duty, responsibility, or hard work and just focus on what Jesus Christ did for me on the cross? He says, to be sure, justification by faith alone on the basis of the imputed righteousness of Christ alone is a glorious and precious truth. 
But Paul does not use it in a way that diminishes the urgency of practical obedience. This kind of preaching has the lamentable effect of dulling a congregation's hope of discovery. Because instead of finding fresh specifics in the text, a monotone discovery of the doctrine of justification by faith apart from works is made again and again. The tragic result is that one of the glorious truths in the world becomes commonplace in the name of preaching Christ. Right? These verses that we've traveled through in Corinthians, they're trying to say something to us. They're trying to engage our lives in a particular way. We want to let that happen and not just avoid what that verse might make us feel and then turn our attention somewhere else. Although it's very important that you and I always read the Bible under the umbrella of the gospel, always of what Christ has done on our behalf. One more thought from Mr. Piper. Ronald, you can come back up here. He says, understanding Paul's focus on Christ crucified in this way has an effect on preaching that is different from what some have thought. When I say it this way, I'm distinguishing this kind of preaching from the kind that deals superficially with the details of the text, only to move on to talk about the atoning work of Christ crucified. I'm offering an alternative to those who think preaching Christ means giving a nod to the subject matter of the text and then moving to the real concern by ending every sermon with rehearsal of what Christ did on the cross. What did Christ do on the cross with regard to the reality of this text, right? There's realities in these texts that are exhorting us to a life, that are giving us the possibilities of living something. What did Christ do on the cross with regard to the reality of this text? Did he die for sinners so that this text, and he's talking about a text actually from 1 Peter when he says this, so that this text about self-control, and sober-mindedness, and love, and hospitality, and grumbling would be in the Bible simply to remind us that he died for sinners? Or did he die for sinners precisely to make this text in all its amazing specificity possible for redeemed people? Wouldn't you like to hear that what Jesus Christ's powerful life, death, and resurrection did for us is, is it gives us grace to put away anger and slander and malice. It gives us grace to embrace a mission where we might work hard for the rest of our lives for the sake of the gospel. It, it enables it makes it possible for me to actually live in something that before I couldn't have lived in. Before I was just like Isaiah, an unclean-lipped man who had nothing but unclean things to say. Or I was Paul. I was going to be against God for the rest of my life until the grace of God showed up. And now I am for him. I work harder than anybody. That's what grace does. Grace is not in vain. It's not just showing up and nothing's going on when grace is on the scene with us. It's just all about what God did. Look at what God did. Look at what God did. Let's sing about what God did. Well, yeah, let's do that. But let's be affected by the grace of God. It is not in us in vain. It's producing a life in us. That might include hard work. It might include transformation. It might include violating my tendency to, to be angry or sullen or uh, revenge taking or whatever it is that's in me by my own flesh. The grace of God is not in vain. It's powerful. It's influential in our lives. I'll just give you this last thought and I'll pray with us. I'm, 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 I'm going to come off sounding worse than what I'd hope to sound when I say some of these things. Um, I, I'm not trying to create an anti-gospel centeredness movement. Um, but I have noticed over the years, and there is a ton of gospel centered material out there. 
There are books that have the, that in the title. It's gospel-centered, gospel-centered this, gospel-centered that. Uh, there are lots of blog posts. There's lots of articles you can read. There's lots of messages online about gospel-centered. And the more gospel-centered we seem to be coming, the more fragile people seem to be the second they hear anything that sounds like you should be doing this. And there's something wrong with the way you've been living. It's like they crumble underneath that. So I'm not sure what this is doing, but it's not producing a people who have this resilient, strong, robust faith in God that can walk through stuff. I mean, you've read a dozen books on this and then you hear one message that makes it sound like, Hey, you share the gospel with anybody lately? No, I feel horrible. I feel so condemned when you say that. It's like, oh, what happened to all those books you read? There's something being said here that's leaving something out. Paul put them all together. It just felt like it's just how you explain things. I've got my humanity. I've got the grace of God and I'm working hard. All in two sentences. And you and I need to be able to say that as well. Let's stand up together. Well, Lord, I thank you that this morning we are gathered here together. And if we did a little bit of inventory, Lord, it, it, it truly would be massively encouraging in our own lives. Because we would ourselves have our own apostle Paul grace sandwich to describe our lives. We would be mindful, Lord, of where we were and what we have been like that did not deter your grace. Your grace came to us and continues to be lavished on us. Lord, we would also be able to say your grace has not been in vain. Lord, we are not the same people that we once were, that we used to be. God, there's so much life in us. There's so much truth in us. There's so much transformation that's taken place in our lives. God, thank you for this great work of grace that's taken up its place in our lives. And Lord, for those who are here, and Lord, any of us find ourselves in this place, where we just get in touch with the fact that we just seem to be falling short. There are things about us that we consider the least. I'm the least Bible reader in this room, or I'm the least gospel sharer in this building right now, or I'm the least lover of difficult people that I know. I'm, I'm the least forgiving person that I know. I, I'm the least gracious person that I know. But by the grace of God, Lord, I am what I am. Is a bigger truth than my least in my unworthiness. Maybe I'm the least of those who are building the kingdom of God. At least that's what I think. Maybe what I do, I haven't realized how it builds the kingdom of God. Maybe, maybe I see myself in isolation. Maybe I don't realize would you help us? Help us to see how your grace has not been in vain in our lives. It has produced in us the extension of your gospel, or perhaps uniquely in some lives, differently than others. But God, in our, in our sense that this is, feels off balance sometimes, this feels difficult to us sometimes, but would you keep us and guard us from doing the wrong thing with your Bible. Lord, you don't seem to find a problem in tucking grace in between human weakness and failings and things that we should be doing. 
But help us to read these passages. Help us to engage these passages. Help these passages not to destroy us. Help them to build us up. Help them to inspire in us lives that make all the more room for grace to be realized and experienced and expressed. Lord, help us to experience transformation from these least places into useful Isaiah and Paul-like experiences where you are using us to do things that we never could have done. And it convinces us all the more that grace is at work in my life. And Lord, we are living lives under the banner of by the grace of God, I am what I am. Lord, would you let that phrase soak its way into our souls so that God, in the days ahead, we don't live in the shadow of unworthy and the shadow of least. We live in the shadow of by grace of God. I am what I am. And that grace, it's not in vain. It's still at work. It's being lavished upon my life today, tomorrow, next week, and in the ages to come. This Lord is the story of your great grace in which we boast. In Jesus name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. God bless you guys at home. We miss you. Look forward to seeing you really, really soon, we hope. See you guys next week.